Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> Hi. <laughs> I want to uh, start off the talk with a a contemporary prayer that I first heard from my buddy Howie Cohn, but uh, it's made it into the the greeting card uh, category. Dear God, so far today I've done okay. (laughs) It's good already. So far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm probably going to need all the help I can get. <laughs> Amen. Life is hard. This is the first noble truth. And sometimes when we're practicing, there can be such a, um, a revelation at that fact and when we look at our minds or we look at our bodies or we see just the situation, the predicament that we seem to be stuck in and hearing one talk after another about suffering and the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end of suffering, There's a lot of emphasis on suffering. (laughs) But really, what this path is about, which I'd like to remind you tonight, is that it is a path of happiness. Real happiness. And I just want to offer what I do to remind you to hold what you're doing in that context. That really the Buddha taught, go for the highest happiness. He said, really go for it. And it just so happens that as you aim for the highest happiness, all the other true happinesses will be available to you. Sometimes we can forget. It was, uh, I, I enjoyed hearing Pascal last night talking about the awakening factors. You know, how did you feel when, when he said, oh, we're going to talk about the factors, awakening factors of enlightenment. You know? Yeah, okay. And we can, as I say, forget, as I've done at times, that this is what we're leading towards. 
And I'll share with you a little bit of my own journey and how I came to uh, be focused on happiness and on joy. Um, I mentioned to you in an earlier talk how grateful I was to find the Dharma and just decided to really go for it once I found this path and what it had to offer. And I believed it was really possible to, um, to free the mind, or at least not be run by my neuroses, which was at first a very strong incentive for me. But to see the possibility, wow, the Buddha was talking about something really profound here, and he said that we can do it. So I had, in my early years, um, what's called a long honeymoon period, where I just was so in love with the Dharma, and so inspired, and did as many retreats as I could, and found, even through the difficulties, it was so worth it because I was waking up and growing and, and opening and, and knew that I was heading in the right direction. At some point, the honeymoon ended, at least that first stage. And I became a very serious practitioner, dead serious. And I lost my joy. Um, Still had tremendous inspiration in the path, but somehow um, I misunderstood some teachings and became a kind of confusion for me. Um, Not so much intellectually or conceptually, but embodied confusion. They all made sense, okay? I see my experience, I open up to it, just let it be how it is. I can open up to it with compassion, with awareness. It's not me, it's not mine. But somehow I misunderstood some principles that, um, that created some inner um, dissonance for me. And uh, I lost my joy. And I actually was in that space for, for a while until uh, I uh, woke up to my confusion and really wanted to take a look and see what did the Buddha say about happiness? Where did I misunderstand? And what can I use and apply actually in my own life that will not just be um, a pleasant retreat or something on the cushion, but really take into my life and, um, and cultivate and embody. And when I looked at the teachings, I was so um, pleased and inspired to see that right in there, there were many signposts to make this more than a theoretical process of awakening happiness and well-being. But I also saw that I was not alone in this, that 
as I looked at my own process, realized that this is not something um, unique to me, that many people in their sincerity of practice can be, um, can lead to a kind of um, contraction of heart or misunderstanding where the, the teachings can somehow, instead of awakening more aliveness, can um, keep us disconnected from, um, from that aliveness. And I'll, actually, I'll share with you a, a quote that I love from um, Ajahn Sumedho. I read from him last time, the guy who gave the three-hour talk in, in Thai. He says, um, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is truly the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. Those who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. So, I wanted to share some of the teachings and remind you that, you know, you might think, oh, joy, happiness, you know, is this light, fluffy dharma, This is, I think, as deep and incredible, uh, incredibly profound and important as opening up to suffering. In fact, the Buddha said, said so, uh, in uh, the the um, list that Pascal was talking about last night. The wise efforts, the four wise efforts. Wise effort means. Guarding against the unwholesome. When the unwholesome is here, learning to overcome the unwholesome. But it also means cultivating wholesome states, states of well-being. And when those states of well-being are here, to maintain and increase those states of well-being. He says, this is wise effort, to maintain and increase states of well-being. Now, we often focus on, how do I deal with all these unwholesome states? But forget that this is about developing and 
maintaining and increasing states of well-being. So how does that work? Here's one little caveat that you have to realize. When you have a state of well-being, the typical way that we try to increase a state of well-being or whatever good is coming down the pike is to hold on to it or say, yeah, bring it on, let's have some more. However, that is precisely the way that you will cut off that state of well-being. Because in the moment of grasping for it, there's a contraction of mind that is antithetical to a wholesome state. So I'd like to talk tonight about how we do this, cultivate states of well-being and maintain and even increase them, both here in retreat and in our life. Also want to just remind you that Joy is a factor of enlightenment, as we heard last night. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment, by the way. It is one of the four Brahma-viharas. It is one of the um, factors of jhana. Actually, two of the factors are joy and happiness. And there are various kinds of and flavors of well-being in the teachings from pamoja, gladness, sukha, happiness, peace, contentment. And so when I use the word joy for one of a better label, I'm also talking about all the states of well-being and ease and uplift. The Buddha was called the happy one. And uh, the Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Purpose of Life is to be Happy. It's a great way to start a book. The purpose of life is to be happy. What does that mean? The purpose of life is to be happy. Because if you come to terms and can open up to your own true well-being, what a gift to everybody around you. Who would you rather be around? Somebody who's angry, anxious, depressed, fearful, might awaken your compassion, but do you say, oh, great, let's hang out with you know, I can open up my calendar to see how many, unless you are in service in which compassion can be a very profound doorway to well-being. But if you're just kind of hanging out and uh, having a, a break, you probably would like to hang out with people who are at ease with themselves because it reminds you and who have a kind of love of life. In fact, I just came across this study recently. Maybe you've seen it. Mm. New research shows that in a social network, happiness spreads among people up to three degrees removed from one another. That means when you feel happy, a friend of a friend of a friend has a slightly higher likelihood of feeling happy too. This is true. 
we get this chain reaction in happiness that I think increases the stakes in terms of us trying to shape our own moods to make sure we have a positive impact on people we know and love, the, the uh, um, person who did the study said. Sadness, it's interesting, also spreads in a network, but not as quickly, researchers found. Each happy friend increases your own chance of being happy by 9%, whereas each unhappy friend decreases it by 7%. <laughs> mm. When framing the question differently, the study found that you are 15% more likely to be happy if a direct connection is happy, 10% if the friend of a friend is happy, and 6% if it's a friend of a friend of a friend. Now you might say, come on, what is this? Okay, I'll just give you little details. Okay. The study, published in the British Medical Journal, used data from the Framingham Heart Study to recreate a network of 4,739 people. And the, the two um, conductors of the study, uh, who, which included Dr. Nicholas Christakis of Harvard Medical School and this other guy um, named Fowler, charted friends, spouses, and siblings in the network and used their self-reported happiness ratings over a 20-year period from 1983 to 2003. Daniel Gilbert, author of Stumbling on Happiness and professor of psychology at Harvard, called this study a stunning paper by two of the most respected scientists in the field. So, what do you think? Everybody wins. Now, I don't want to put pressure on you, you know. <laughs> it's not to feel guilty if you're bummed out. And it's also uh, important to be completely real with where you are. You can't fake this. And in fact, by being completely real and being able to hold it all, you are learning how to not be thrown by all your... Um, sufferings and sadnesses. That's partly what we're doing here. You know, life is made of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, as it says in Taoism. If you're only focused on joy and happiness, you're missing out on reality. That's not the way it is. But if you're only or mainly focused on sorrow and suffering, you're also missing out on all the blessings in life. And so this is about opening up to all the well-being as a way to hold all the pain and sorrow. That's one way to, to look at it. And then ultimately get beyond joy and sorrow to a place that is deep peace in the, the freedom of, of mind and heart. So... Um, so I want to share with you um, some principles that um, I've found. Oh, before I do, actually, I want to share with you how we can distort some of the, the, the teachings. Um, two particular teachings that are easy to somehow misunderstand or um, can lead to this kind of contracted state. One is um, called Samvega. I, I don't, did I talk about this last time? 
Samvega, which is a very profound understanding. But this is the definition of Samvega, at least according to uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. How does that grab you? <laughs> this is a, a very important understanding, and in fact, when we talked before about that urgency, you know, vimamsa idipada, seeing the preciousness of this human birth and the defects of samsara. This is seeing the defects of samsara. But the operative line, what can, what can be lost in this definition, where you see, uh, where you hear the, the futility and the meaninglessness of life, is the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And we are somehow going against the, the stream, as it's been said. And see, wait a second. Is that where happiness really lies? Where we have been told it lies? And to see true happiness where it really lies is radical. Radical. Oh, interject this piece right now, and then I'll share with you the other teaching. This is um, uh, an ad, maybe some of you have seen, who've heard me give a talk like this before, um, that I love, that was given to me a few years ago. It's called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. And this is the ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And here's the, it's a two-page ad. Here's the second. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care for jewelry, but you see that and you say, gee, I want some of that too. <laughs> it's very powerful. And you think, oh, I know. It's just an ad. Who falls for that? Your brain falls for that. <laughs> and according to one study done about a dozen years ago now, which is, I think, very conservative given 
hyperlink reality, the average American consumer around the year 2000 received 3,000 messages a day like this saying, you think you're happy? You're not happy. You need this to make you happy. You know? Unless you're here at Spirit Rock on retreat when it's, what's for lunch? You know, <laughs> that's it. But you are taking a fast, starving this flaming passion for the next thing. And it does get into your brain. That's why companies spend, just had a Super Bowl, three and a half million dollars for 30 seconds so that Coca-Cola can have you see just a moment of somebody sipping that bottle and saying, mmm, I'm so happy. Right? <laughs> They're not saying, We've got this new drink that maybe somebody is going to learn for the first time. It's called Coca-Cola. They know you know Coca-Cola, but they get one more hit of you deepening that in your brain, and that has a reverberating consequence. So it takes a tremendous um, shift to open up to this samvega, life as it's normally lived, thinking, you think this is going to make you happy? That's not really where happiness lies. And the, the corollary to samvega is a beautiful quality called pasada, which is clarity and serene confidence, a clear sense of the predicament and of the way out of it, leading to something beyond aging, illness, and death and at the same time feeling confident that this path will work. That's the good news. That's what Samvega leads to. Oh, where can I find a way out of this? So that's one teaching, and another one that can easily, of many, can easily be, be distorted, is um, the teaching on Nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, Nibida which is often translated as um, revulsion or utter disgust, particularly pertaining to the aggregates. You know, God gave a talk on the five aggregates, and in some of the teachings in the Vasudhi Magga, one should have revulsion and utter disgust for the, the aggregates for this mind, body, and those out there. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Right? <laughs> and it's easy to distort that and, real, and think, oh, I've got to not like this body. I've got to have revulsion for this body and this mind, not be so attached to it. But actually, that's a function of the translations because uh, a better, more accurate translation for Nibbida is disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. Disenchantment, not being enchanted by it or by them. Breaking the spell that we're under. That's a very different message isn't it? But you hear the first and you say, oh, 
what's wrong with me? I, I love to see beauty, like Sumedho says. I love, I want to learn to be kind and love this body that served me so well. And so there's that dissonance. So when I took a look at um, what the Buddha taught about happiness, uh, there were three principles that particularly uh, struck me as something that could be applied in a very um, practical, effective, systematic way, both in retreat and in our life. And I want to share this with you so you can practice it here in the retreat. First principle is what I already mentioned about cultivating wholesome states, that wholesome states are good and that the, when they arise, we can maintain and even increase them. What is a wholesome state? In, in the Pali, it's the, the, name, the word is kusala, as opposed to akusala, unwholesome state. Akusala, unwholesome state, which is defined as a state that um, brings happiness and leads to more happiness. Unwholesome states like fear, anger, judgment, confusion, lust, greed, hatred, ill will, cruelty, you know those, right? Worry. It's not that you're bad for having them. So don't go ahead and start beating yourself up. They're part of being human. But the Buddha said, just look what leads to well-being and what doesn't. And when those states come that are a natural part of being human, learn to overcome them and to, um, uh, to guard against them. All of those states, those unwholesome states or unhealthy states are contracted states. The mind is contracted. The body is contracted or agitated. They're unpleasant. Right? They are called unwholesome or unhealthy. You don't want to cultivate those. Wholesome states, states of well-being, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, generosity, patience, um, sincerity, all of those states, they are states that open us. They're expansive. They expand our body. We relax. We open. They expand our mind. There's more space. They open our heart. All of those states are states of opening. So this is the first principle to cultivate and increase those states, those wholesome states. Second principle, which I came across in a a not so well-known discourse, but when I saw it, the words leaped out at me from the page. It's in the Majima Nikaya, number 99, if you're, uh, want to look it up is um, the teaching that along with unwholesome oh, sorry along with wholesome states 
there is a gladness that accompanies them. Right? In fact, think right now, close your eyes, and think of something that brings you joy. Some activity or some situation that brings you joy. And have an image of, of that. Just remember the last time. Notice how you feel in your body. Notice in your mind expansiveness, ease, and maybe a, just a little uplift, feeling of uplift. Okay. okay, you can open your eyes. You notice that little, little gladness? The Buddha says that gladness, the, the, the line in the discourse is that gladness I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says, connecting with that gladness, the, the gladness connected with the wholesome state, one uh, finds inspiration in the meaning, delight in the meaning, one gladdens the heart and gladdens the meaning and connection with the Dharma. So he says, pay attention to that gladness. Don't miss it. In fact, he gives the example in the discourse, thinking uh, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, thinking I'm generous, one gladdens the heart. So you're in the middle of a generous act. He says you should think to yourself, and it's in quotes in the sutta, I'm generous. This is the Buddha saying, it's good to think, oh, I'm generous. He's not saying, hey, check it out. You know, everybody see how generous I am? I am such a generous person. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't take ownership of it. Don't identify with it. But feel how good it feels for generosity to move through you. Don't miss it. Don't miss the gladness connected with that wholesome state. So that's the second principle. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll share right now a, a, a teaching that, uh, that my friend uh, Rick has given to me. He says that in a neuroscience level, that when you are focused on the wholesome state, it's like shining a flashlight, shining a light on it and a vacuum that it scoop, your brain scoops up that registering of the wholesome state and it deepens your neural pathways. And the formula that he gives in, in the joy course is, is this. You can try this out. He says, if you're in the middle of a wholesome state, take 30 seconds to really let it sink in. And if you do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes, that's a lot. If you do that six times in a day over a two-week period, you will notice a shift in your level of well-being. Both because you're deepening the neural pathways 
And you're also getting into the habit of noticing and looking for what's good. You're going to have a lot more opportunity here because you're not doing a whole lot of other things. You might as well, why not be there for it, right? And this counteracts, by the way, um, the tendency that we have that is... Uh, well-documented in uh, neuroscience, to look for what's wrong. Probably many of you are familiar with the amygdala, this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in the center of our brains that scan the horizon for what's wrong. And it's a good thing that it does because it keeps us safe and protected. But we often have overactive amygdalas particularly under stress where it's firing and working overtime as the mind gets contracted. And so we tend to see what's wrong and miss what's right. As, as Rick says, the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. And I read one study this, this past year, I think it was, that said if you have um, a negative experience, say a negative interaction, it takes seven positive interactions to balance that out. You know, somebody looks at you dirty or says something, you know, like, who do you think you are anyway? It lands, you know. You need seven people to say, you know, it's so nice to see you. You know, it starts to even out. Okay, for most people. Unless you train yourself to start taking in the good. Not only taking in the good, but my main practice for many years now has been looking for the good. So, that second principle, one seeing the wholesome states and cultivating them, to tuning into the gladness associated with them, as the Buddha suggests. And the third, another teaching from uh, Majima 19, where the Buddha says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? If you your mind is practicing looking for what's wrong. If you go about looking through the lens of the world is awful and everybody around is going to disappoint me and this is a dangerous place and let's get out of here as fast as I can. Or let's, uh, this, this, this is, things won't work out you will have ample evidence to confirm your hypothesis. If you look, that's where you're frequently thinking and pondering. And so everything will be in your your field will be used to confirm that hypothesis. If you are looking for the good, or for instance, training yourself to see how amazing life is, did I mention the, the Einstein quote about uh, miracles? Did I say it here? Now Einstein has this, this line. He says, there's two ways to go through life. 
One is to see nothing as a miracle and the other is to see everything as a miracle. Why not go for the latter? It's true. Everything is a miracle if you start looking that way. If you see, it's all amazing. And I know that people here on the retreat have have gotten in touch with that. Wow, you know, you see somebody looking at a lizard. Wow, look at that. Or looking at a plant grow. Wow, I can almost see that growing. Wow, you know. It's kind of like what I said before about the, the kid with the, you know, wow, look at, look at his bugger. Um, <laughs> and you look at it there. Wow, everything is a miracle. Or you see that really people underneath whatever their fears and confusions want to feel love and want to share their love or want to open up to well-being and feel safe and, um, and express their caring. If you look for that, you'll find it. Or you'll find it a whole lot more likely than if you look the other way. Not that you'll find it all the time with everybody, but the more you look for it, you'll find it. And just as a my own practice, I think I'll I'll, I'll share that practice of looking for the good. Something that I I uh, love to reflect on and have others reflect on. If you are say in a room with somebody and somebody comes in and they're looking at all your faults and flaws and they're judging you how do you feel sorry i don't want to bring you down but uh, how do you feel small flawed somebody else might come into that room and they might know all your flaws but they're just seeing how beautiful you are and you know that that's what they're they're tuning into how do you feel beautiful don't you So you actually have the power just by what you look for to draw it out of others. Isn't that amazing? It's like we we are creating this self-fulfilling prophecy. So to incline the mind towards noticing what's good and noticing the wholesome, this is the way to maintain and increase that. And the neuroscience corollary to this is, as the Buddha said, what we'll frequently think and ponder upon is the, um, the axiom that uh, Donald Hebb came up with 50, 60 years ago. Neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it works. You set up those neural pathways in the brain and that's, that's the way you see the world. So those three principles, cultivating and increasing wholesome states, noticing the gladness connected with the wholesome, and to keep practicing, inclining the mind, they start to have a very powerful effect, not only in the moment, but in your whole quality around practice. Now, I am not suggesting that you just put a smiley smile on your face and just say, oh yeah, let's, let's just get over our suffering and uh, what's the old song? Uh, forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You know? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. 
but to see all the goodness around you and to not miss all of those moments of well-being. How many, how many people had a moment of well-being sometime during the day today? I thought so. Oh, good. I'm so glad. You know. Were you there for it? Maybe. But if you practice really being there for it more and more, it just, you start seeing it all over. So with that in mind, let's see how much time I have left. I'll share uh, a few simple uh, practices that, um, just, uh, that I, I share in, in the course that you can kind of play around with. Because I, and what I do is uh, look at, I've, I, I've explored 10 particular wholesome states that one can cultivate um, practically on the cushion and in one's life. <clears throat> and then applying this, this principle to it. Um, let's see. First uh, is one that I, uh, that's been mentioned here. I mentioned uh, it and a couple of others have mentioned it, which is the power of intention. Just how important it is to incline the mind towards well-being. Not in denial, but just realizing why you're doing this is to be happy, isn't it? In whatever way you say that, you call that, whether it's peace or awakening or freedom or love or free from suffering, you want to be happy. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? Now, if you're fighting your hand saying, yeah, sometimes I like being a grump, okay, and you're just being polite and keeping it down, okay, that's okay. That's just your way of being happy. <laughs> but whatever we do, we're, do, we're being moved to do it because we want, we think something is going to bring us well-being, as misguided as it often is, oh, this is going to make me happy. Oh, what was I thinking before? But the source that it comes from is really very pure and very um, healthy and whole. It's that place in you, actually, when you think about it, that is rooting for your well-being, you might get it, have gotten into habits that don't serve you and that you don't even realize there's another way. But it's all coming from a place that's wanting to have a greater well-being. And so what the intention, getting in touch with our intention, means is just really activating and empowering that very pure, wholesome place that really wishes for well for yourself. And to consciously put it at the center of your life and saying, as the, the Dalai Lama says, the purpose of life is to be happy. You're, you can say that for yourself and for everybody that you know. The purpose of my life is to find as much true happiness as I can. That can be my gift to everybody. That's a wonderful motivation. But to consciously intend 
That's where everything, you set in motion a powerful process. And actually, you know, you've turned the wheel coming through the gate, all the, the, um, uh, the, the, the spindles on, on the wheel, the, the eightfold path. Wise intention is really seeing, once you see where happiness lies, wise intention is saying, I'm going for it. That's what got you here. But often we don't make the connection in saying, I want to be happy. That might seem like too much of a stretch. Can I really give that to myself? Okay, I want to not be miserable. I'll take that. Okay. But to say, I want to be happy. If you truly understand what that means or use words that really connect with you, like, I want real peace. I want real freedom from suffering, same thing. But to really get clear on your intention, that's what's gotten you here. And to consciously bring that into your life, then that holds everything that you do, that wise intention, that clear comprehension of purpose that I I think I I mentioned the last time. And it's possible, even if it seems far-fetched, to change. You know, oh, well, I've been practicing self-loathing for a long time. I don't think there's much hope for me. Don't buy it. In fact, I'll I'll share with you. I want to share with you a a passage from um, Martin Seligman, who's the the father of positive psychology. He wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, about 15, uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago and started a whole movement towards psychology looking at well-being rather than pathology. I'm sure you're all familiar with positive psychology. And this is how it started. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. (laughs) Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. This was for me an epiphany, nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the start of the positive psychology movement. You can decide to do your part to change. 
And when we are intending, we are not holding up a timetable or a goal. I think I mentioned that last time. You are simply getting clear on the decision, the heartfelt decision to do your part to make that happen. Just before we go on, I'd like you for a moment to go inside and for just a a moment, get in touch with the honest truth that you really do want as much well-being and happiness in your life. As far-fetched as the mind might say, don't, don't get caught there right now. Just get in touch with the fact that you truly want to be happy. Truly, real happy, really happiness. And just imagine what it would be like if you learned more and more to bring that to yourself, to find ways to cultivate that, you know, which you're doing here right now. And that maybe in a year, two years, five years, if you stay connected to that vision, that you grow in well-being and happiness. Just imagine what it would look like and feel like in your own heart, your own mind, and in all the people around you. What a gift to them. If that seems like a worthwhile endeavor, take a moment and get in touch with your intention to do your part to bring that about. That is a heartfelt decision, not hoping it would happen or wishing it would happen, but deciding to do your part to make it happen and allowing life to support you. Notice how it feels if you can connect with that for a moment. There's power in that. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. Hmm. I can see I'm not going to get through a lot of this, so maybe maybe I will do it. This I'll continue the next time. I'll just do one more, just to show you how mindfulness, what we're doing here. Actually, I'll do more. How mindfulness itself is a wholesome state that's leading to more happiness. As the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, there is one direct way, a most wonderful way, Thich Nhat Hanh translates it, there is one direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief and despair, pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness, and that is the establishment of mindfulness. Because in the moment of mindfulness is a moment of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Or, more positively put, non-greed, generosity, or letting go, the heart that can let go. Non-hatred, loving kindness. And non-delusion, clarity and wisdom. Every single moment that you are mindful is a moment of freedom. 
Notice that. Notice how you probably have seen how good it feels. You know, when you're finally in the present, you know, it seems so elusive at first. Now I, I know that many of you are, it's not such a fluke. Wow, it's really possible to be here in the present for maybe little stretches at a time, maybe even longer. It feels so good, doesn't it? I mean, why be anywhere else? When you, when you start to get that, it's like, oh, I just want to be as present as I can for my life. It begets itself, a very wholesome state. And to feel how good it feels when you are present. And it also cuts us off from our confusion and negativity. Or the stories that we tell ourselves. We wake up from the stories. Or when there is pain and sorrow and suffering, we can hold those qualities with a mindfulness, a tender heart that can, uh, that can even be touched like we did the compassion today, that can bring a heart of compassion to it when you bring a kind awareness to the moment. So mindfulness itself is a very healing and most direct way that the Buddha said to cultivate well-being. Celebrate those moments of mindfulness. Not, hey, aren't I cool, but just delight in them. That's what makes you want to keep on going for more. Not with grasping, but just relaxing into how good it feels. I'll do one, one more before we go, and then I'll... Because what I want to do is, sh- is show you how then mindfulness can be applied to all the other wholesome states. And that is really the gift, a tremendous gift, besides just a moment of freedom. And this is what I want you to um, just play around with or invite you to play around with in your own practice, that when you're feeling a wholesome state of well-being, to bring mindfulness right there and really connect with it, take in the good. I think, I'm just trying to remember if we did this about... um, the, the, a very direct way is is gratitude, and I talked about the blessings, the blessing sutta last time, but I don't think I did a gratitude practice with mindfulness, did I? Did I do that here? No. Okay. So, this is a simple practice, and then you can extrapolate for any other states of well-being, whether it's loving kindness or. Uh, sincerity or patience or generosity or whatever, calm, any of those factors of enlightenment particularly, this is how you maintain and increase the wholesome state by being very present for it, bringing mindfulness to it. So I invite you first for a moment, close your eyes and bring to mind some blessing in your life. Someone or something that you're grateful for or grateful to. And as you bring an image of that person or situation, just give a little, a simple silent thank you from the heart. If we've done this before, then here's another chance to do it. And just simply to that person or to life, thank you. 
And as you get in touch with that, relax into that feeling, explore the landscape of gratitude. What does it feel like in your body, in your mind, in your heart? Thank you. Take a breath. And bring to mind another blessing, someone or something. So many in your life. And just have an image. Let yourself get in touch with the gratitude and a simple thank you sincere thank you from the heart thank you and let yourself feel it thank you and then just relax into that feeling here it is don't miss it connect with it take it in notice how it feels in your body in your mind Okay, you can open your eyes. So with that in mind, could you feel, feel that just for a few moments? Oh, yeah. And you can consciously, if you're feeling really stuck, recall some blessing in your life. This is a good recollection as an antidote to the contracted mind. But even more, what I'd l- I invite you to do are the moments that naturally arise in your practice to consciously feel the wholesomeness of them, as the Buddha said, to feel the gladness connected with the wholesome and to maintain and increase that wholesome state with your presence, not with attachment. Anytime you want to hold on to it or consciously make it happen, it's going to be elusive but just to relax into it and feel connected with it. And I'll close with uh, one other story that might give you some inspiration if you think, oh, I don't think I can do this. And this is uh, a story that I write about, my favorite story in, in the book about my mother, who is now 93. Um, and when I was writing this, she was 89, and um, I was writing about gratitude. I was visiting her down in uh, Los Angeles. My sister was away for a couple of weeks, and I spent uh, some time with my mom. And my mom is, um, tends to be a negative person. And if you look on YouTube, you can see a video of her, which now is up to 182,000 views because she's very funny in, in revealing herself. And the, the title is Confessions of a Jewish Mother, How My Son Ruined My Life. <laughs> and it came from this, this story. I said, I had all this... this um, uh, research about gratitude. I was writing a chapter on gratitude. And it was, it's amazing. It builds your immune system. You want Your relationships are better. You have a greater sense of well-being. And just on and on, one after another, this scientific research on gratitude. I said, what do you think, Mom? 
She said, that's pretty impressive. And she said, as, by her own admission, she says, you know, I tend to see what's wrong. I've been seeing the glass half empty my whole life. And I said, Mom, wouldn't it be cool if you did a gratitude prayer? If you got into gratitude? She said, James, dear, I've been doing it this way for 89 years. I don't think I'm able to change now. I said, Mom, if you could, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would. But don't hold your breath. I said, are you willing to, we, we play games, we play Scrabble a lot. She's a great Scrabble player. We were playing Scrabble as we were going through this conversation. And I said, uh, how about if we play a game? Every time you complain, she said, I know that my life is very blessed, but I still see what's, what's wrong. So I said, every time you complain, I'll just remind you to hold it a different way. What do you mean? I said, well, for instance, like, like you, as she would say, you know, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey. You know, <laughs> it's so cold. And I'll just say, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. She said, okay, let's do it. Because she has that, she's got some moxie and like, kind of likes to play. Okay, let's do it. We had an amazing week I had so many opportunities as the complaints <laughs> rolled off her tongue one after another, you know, oh gosh, this food is a little bit cold. And, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> and we, we laughed the whole week. And I left, uh, I, I came back to my, my house and, uh, and I had a friend, uh, there was a friend who was kind of in on the game who played it with her. And, um, and I called her a, a lot those first few days afterwards just to keep it going. And magically, it stuck. And uh, actually, my sister, who's very much like my mother, came home a few weeks later, and her first comment was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> this is honest. Scott's honor. And uh, it stuck, and actually, a few months later, um, seven months later, was my birthday. And we always exchange birthday cards. Uh, a birthday, not only birthday cards, we exchange poems. We write poems for the, in my family. It's like a family tradition. You don't have a birthday go by without writing a poem. And I, we, it's fun. I love it. So she sent a card to me on my birthday, and this was part of her poem, which, um, just one little background piece of information, is that uh, her eyesight was, was getting lost to macular degeneration at that point. Didn't know it, but it's the kind that was reversible, so she has her eyesight back. But at this point, she was losing her eyesight. But this is her poem. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. 
it's overflowing to be sure. If my mom <laughs> can change at 89, anyone can change. And she's now 93, and almost every, you know, third or fourth sentence out of her mouth, I'm so blessed. We're so blessed. I'm so content. That's her favorite word these days. So, I mean, it, it, I don't know how it happened, but it happened. <laughs> Anybody can change if you've got the intention. And what I would invite you is to notice the wholesome states, to really take them in, feel the gladness connected with them, and keep on inclining your mind to the natural well-being that you want as you hold all the, the dukkha and the sorrow and the suffering. And I, I, in, in the next talk, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how suffering itself, I mentioned it in the last talk, but maybe a little bit again, how suffering itself leads to greater joy. So this is not about denial. This is about opening up to the whole show, but just getting clear and seeing the goodness in life inside you and around you. So we'll just take a moment. Just feel the peace. for your attention. Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.